Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to learn. Thank you for giving us everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness. And I pray that you would help us this hour to know your mind and to revel in your truth. Change us such that every part, every person in Fellowship Bible Church is a minister. That is your ideal. That's your biblical ideal. And may we strive to that ideal today and moving forward. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I suppose in every profession there are questions that the professional receives that he really can't answer. What doctor hasn't been asked, am I going to make it? The doctor would say, well, I think the prognosis is good, but the doctor is never going to answer that with a yes or no, will they? Or I suppose every general that's ever gone to war has ever been asked, are we going to win the war? Well, again, that's an outcome that the general doesn't really control. Now, does he? And he'll say, we'll do all the right things, we'll do our best, we'll get the right information, and we're going to try our hardest. And then we'll fight. Or what mechanic hasn't been asked? Is the repair going to hold? Well, probably. I'll do my best. You did want me just to put a Band-Aid on it, so maybe a week, you know? Every professional understands that there are outcome-based questions that are really impossible to answer. I would say, as pastor, I get that same, I get one of those questions very frequently. And it's a question that I can't really answer because it's an outcome question rather than a process question. It's this, here's the answer to the question. Here, here's the, the question, rather, that I get. Where do you see Fellowship Bible Church going in the next five to ten years? Now, how many of you would think that's a perfectly natural question to ask? Isn't that something you should plan for? Isn't that something you should strive for? Well, believe it or not, the passage we're coming to right now teaches us how to answer that question. The fact is, God will do with our church what he wants to do with it. I can no more tell you what will come of Fellowship Bible Church five to ten years from now than anybody else sitting here can. But, God has outlined in these verses a definitive process. And then he can take that process and make your church whatever he chooses to make your local church. What we need to focus on almost every day is the process of every member becoming a servant. Every member becoming a minister. And gathering your ministry equipping from teachers. That's the process that God has intended for his local churches. And I want us to get into this passage and see it for ourselves. But first we need to do is get a little context so we remember what we've been covering. Paul says back at the beginning of chapter 4 that Christ has given every believer a gift. He's gifted it, just like you would a birthday gift or a Christmas gift. He's given them away and he expects 
his gifts to be exercised. So in a sense, every gift that's given to you is also given to everybody else as you exercise it. There's no such thing as a gift, for example, under the Christmas tree that is isolated only for one child, and that's the only child that gets to use it. No, every child is a conduit through which that gift blesses the rest of the family. That's what Christ intends. He gives each of us a gift that he then intends for us to use for the benefit of everybody else here. That's Christ's intention. That's how Christ gives. Last week, the Apostle Paul began telling us that there are certain gifts, and he emphasizes four of them here. He says apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor-teachers. Now let me stop right there and just clarify a few things. First and foremost, I think whenever we come to a list like this, the first question that we all have is this. What's my gift? I see that God has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. But I doubt very many of us in here would say, oh yeah, that's my gift. I get, I, I'm sharing that one. Well, so you know, the Apostle Paul is not saying right here that he's giving an exhaustive list of the gifts. I put a couple passages up here. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 28 and following, and Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8 where Paul lists some of the other gifts that are available to people in the body. But I would also caution you that that as well is not an exhaustive list, and Paul would not say that it's an exhaustive list. So if you say, I'm just not sure I find myself in that list, here's what I would recommend you do. Just get serving in the church. Just get serving. And eventually what will happen is somebody, one of the saints, is going to tell you, you know, that was such a blessing to me. That was really good. In fact, it won't be a spouse or a friend. It'll be somebody kind of, by your, from your perspective, kind of at random. And then somebody else in the church will come along and say, hey, can you do that thing again? That was really good. Can you do that same type of thing? That was a blessing. And suddenly you're keying in on the ways that God has gifted you to serve his body. And you might not be able to plug it into one of these lists. We're told that the gifts of Christ in other passages, we're told that they're, uh, they're many-sided, multivariegated. There's shades and types of gifts that each one of us possesses. And these are gifts that are discovered by doing them. Does anybody remember the, the name of the runner? I had it in my mind before I came to the pulpit, and he, he left my mind. The first runner to break the four-minute mile. He was the first one to run the mile in under four minutes. What was it? No, no, he was a 400-meter runner. Anybody? Hearing some names? Somebody's going to Google it on their phone and shout it out. Um, that guy. Bannister, yes, Bannister. First guy to run under... He was asked in a newspaper interview when he discovered that he had a gift for running. You know what his answer was? Hey, Roy, when did you discover that you had a gift for running? You know what he said? When I was running. 
basically, I started running, and eventually, not that eventually, it didn't take long, nobody else could keep up with me. They were breathing hard and sucking air, and I was just fine. And it was while I was running that I discovered I had a gift for running. And so I would say the same thing to you. Get serving. And while you are serving, you will discover your gift for serving. A second point of clarification. Last week, the Apostle Paul said that he gave apostles and prophets. Now, we noted that there are people the world over who will say that they're apostles and they're prophets. We also noted that in the New Testament, there are some qualifications for prophets. You have to have seen the risen Christ. You have to uh, have, uh, have performed miracles. You have to have doc- be laying a doctrinal foundation. You have to be chosen specifically by Christ. But did you know there are many people who will come to you and say, I've had all of those. Jesus appeared to me. I did a miracle. I have teaching. The fact is, we need to be able to answer that very well. Because there are people from many different perspectives. Every different uh, group that claims to be Christian says what will claim apostleship in some way. Now, we at Fellowship Bible Church teach that that was a first century gift never to be repeated. Because you can only lay a foundation once. It was a doctrinal foundation that was to be laid. Furthermore, these affirmations that these men were apostles were all done with miraculous signs that were available for everybody to see. So what God gave there is a unrepeatable one-time gift. But let's go back and remember something. You say, well, that's, that was fine for the apostles, but I'm not an apostle, so I don't get that gift. How many of you may have thought that? That's absolutely... That, that, I'm glad nobody raised their hand because that's backward. Okay. Let's say... Okay, I'm, this is not a hypothetical. Pastor Chris's one of his gifts is bread making. Okay? He is incredible at making bread. Very good. He brings over chocolate bread to our house sometimes. I don't know how he makes it chocolate bread, but he does it, and it's delicious. Now, when he does that, when he brings that over to the house, who is the, a direct beneficiary of Pastor Chris's gift? The baker's. Who are to be the direct beneficiaries of apostolic gifts? Us. How do we enjoy that gift? By what's been preserved for us here. Their writings, their words, have been preserved for us in a book. And the gift that God gave to them to lay that doctrinal foundation is to be used and exercised by us for our benefit. There's no situation in life that you can't have where New Testament apostolic doctrine doesn't speak to it. That's how we exercise and enjoy gifts that though we won't personally possess, they're still gifts meant 
for us to enjoy and exercise, albeit somewhat indirectly. Besides, who wants to labor away in the kitchen for five hours making chocolate bread when you can just have Pastor Chris bring some over, right? We get to enjoy the gifts and exercise them and put them to use, even though we're not the ones directly possessing them. That was a one-time era that can't be repeated because you don't lay multiple foundations. Does that make sense, everybody? Okay. Let's move forward. We're going to move forward now to two gifts that are operative still today. We have evangelists. We have pastor teachers. Okay? Evangelists and pastor teachers. And then he tells us why. So we have three points today. Evangelists. And I got super creative on this second point. Pastor teachers. <laughs> and then a little creativity for the third. The purpose of public proclamation. Because you'll notice, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, these are all public preachers. So what's the purpose of this sort of public teaching? And Paul's going to talk about that here. But let's get to this, and let's move rather quickly through this first one, evangelists. What is the basic meaning of the word? The Apostle Paul says that to us, Christ has given evangelists, and by that, the basic meaning uh, used in secular literature is the herald of official good news. Back then, they didn't have printing presses or internet connections. They couldn't get news out. So how was Caesar supposed to communicate to his vast kingdom that he has just destroyed the heathen of Gaul? Okay, I don't know that he would call them heathen, but the enemies in Gaul. How would he announce that? But he would send runners all over the countryside, heralding the champion, heralding the good news of victory. It was an official delegate who would come and deliver good news to the city, sometimes on a scroll with a wax seal of Caesar himself. These are what evangelists do. They are heralds from God our King who takes the message of good news around. The main idea of this word is the itinerant nature of this person. He's moving from place to place, or she's moving from place to place. So, there has been a lot of heat and light shed on what this office actually is. Now, when we say the word evangelist, that brings a lot of thoughts to mind. A lot of us will think of a person like, like Billy Graham, who would go settle in a city for six weeks at a time and preach a, a long crusade. Others of us think of uh, a, a man who hooks a trailer up to his truck and he travels from church to church to church every week. And the church will have a week of rallies that begin on Sunday night and culminate on Friday night. It's for this reason that some of these evangelists have been accused of owning six suits and six sermons, okay? They preach Sunday through Friday, and then they go preach the same six sermons next week. There are others who, when they hear this word evangelist, think of a person, whether male or female, who is particularly gifted at sharing the gospel with other people. How many of you have known a person like that? They're just so gifted at turning the conversation 
toward God's good news at almost the drop of a hat. They can do that. They can get it right there and talk about that. How many of you know a person like that? Yeah. That's a gift, isn't it? So what does Paul have in mind when he's talking about these evangelists? And that's the central question. These evangelists, Paul has in mind, I think, somebody more specific than just a regular person who's gifted with evangelism, but something a little less specific than what we would call the guy with six suits and six sermons. Make sense? Okay. This is a person who God sends to travel place to place, spreading the good news. Sometimes we call these guys church planters. We send them to a certain area, and they stay for a little bit, and they get a church started, and they hand it over to somebody who will stay a little bit longer, and then they move on to the next town. They're very good at this sort of thing. Let me get to the text. There, these words are mentioned a few times. Philip, a deacon, in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, preached a couple of different times. He preached to huge crowds of Samaritans. And then God told him to get up and go to the south so that he could interact with one man. Sometimes it was big groups of people. Sometimes it was one person. But God told him to get up and go over here. We meet Philip later again, actually. And he's in the town of Caesarea. He's settled in. So maybe he's planting a church there. We don't know. He had four daughters who were unmarried, we're told. They were singers. Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4.5, is told to do the work of an evangelist. Or the Apostle Paul, even though he's never called an evangelist, he frequently says that he is an evangelizer. So, for example, in Romans 15.20, he says that one of his goals is to go where Christ has never been preached and to preach the gospel. But that ministry isn't just to unbelievers. That ministry is to believers as well. Because at the beginning of the book, in Romans 1.15, he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you Christians. How many of you have read the book Pilgrim's Progress? It's the most printed book other than the Bible in the English language. Pilgrim has found himself in a really bad spot. He's a believing man. He's a Christian. And do you know who gets him out? A man that he met earlier by the name of Evangelist. Christian, oftentimes, we have to revisit the gospel, our redemption, what it means to have been born again. And that is what we need to move forward. In fact, the longer I walk with Christ, the more I realize I have to keep going back and rehearsing all the time the good news that Jesus Christ died for sinners like me. And that is a truth that I never outgrow. Far to the contrary. It's a truth that gains more and more specialness. Is that a word? It becomes more special to me every day I walk with Christ. It's a truth I grow into that expands. I'm evangelizing myself. 
So the Apostle Paul says he's, that we have been given the gift of these men, these people, who go to a certain location and preach the good news. Sometimes it's to a, a bunch, sometimes it's to a few. The key is that it's of an itinerant nature. Okay? Next, the Apostle Paul says we've been given the gift of pastor-teachers. Now, before we get too far along, you'll notice here that in our translations, it says pastors and teachers. If you're reading along in an ESV with me, you'll see a little note, and it says, or pastors dash teachers. If you've got a KJV or an NIV, it will say pastors and teachers. It's a little bit tricky, and I don't want to get into the technical nuances of it. But you can take this as two separate offices, or you can take it as one. Not getting into the technicalities of it, I'm convinced that this is one office because of the way that Paul uses the words in the sentence. But it's perfectly legitimate to say there's two. That's fine. But we're going to take it as one. Okay? So, he gave pastors, which are teachers, or pastor teachers. They do both the work of pastoring and teaching. It's part of the same job. And that's how we're going to take it moving forward. I want us to know that in Paul saying that he's given pastor teachers, he's tapping into a deep and rich Old Testament metaphor. In Psalm 23, all of you know this passage, the Lord is my shepherd. Or in Isaiah 40, verse 11, he shall shepherd his flock, he'll gather them to his bosom. The same is mentioned in Ezekiel 34, verses 12 and 13. The Lord is a shepherd. Jesus, in John chapter 10, verse 11, says, I am the good shepherd. And how do we distinguish between good shepherds and bad? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hireling runs at danger. The good shepherd lays down his life. Jesus loved this metaphor. We're told in Revelation 7.17 that Christ is the chief shepherd. If you were to ask me, who is the chief shepherd of Fellowship Bible Church? Who is the head? It's Christ. But our chief shepherd, our great shepherd, employs under-shepherds. And these under-shepherds are elders. We're told that in 1 Peter 5.4 that an elder, an overseer, is to administrate the work of the church and to shepherd the church. They're to do so... Um, exercising eager and exemplary oversight. We have a joyful job, us pastors. It's a thrill to lead people spiritually. There needs to be an energy and an excitement. And I probably fail sometimes at this in my home. I never try to refer to my work as a job. I don't have a job in that sense. I have a calling. 
God has called me to shepherd the flock. So I'll tell the kids I, I need to do some work because I don't know any other way to say it. But kids, if I mess this up at home, you can correct me. I don't have a job. Okay? I get to shepherd. There's an eager, there needs to be an eagerness. And when, when my eagerness for the ministry breaks down, I realize something has gone wrong. And it's time to figure out what has gone wrong. There needs to be an excitement to the ministry. Now, we're told by Peter, and we're also told by the Apostle Paul at several places, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, he goes into qualifications. The pastor is not perfect. Pastor Chris, Pastor Dom, they're not perfect people, nor am I. But there are certain qualifications. There needs to be a life that others could follow should they want to. The Apostle Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Again, any pastor who looks at those qualifications trembles. And if they don't tremble, they probably need to go get a job. Okay? <laughs> it's humbling. And you know all the places you're failing but you rely on the grace of others to say, yes, you're, by the grace of God, you're, you're meeting the standard. And when this happens, when God graces a man's heart to eagerly and excitedly shepherd his people, it's a wonderful thing. Now, let me give a quick visual that would have been perfectly intuitive to first century Christians, but isn't so intuitive to us Westerners. Okay? To quote a former Hebrew teacher of mine, shepherds aren't cowboys. Okay? What would the flock do if somebody hopped on a horse and rode right through the middle of the flock? Well, they'd scatter all over the hills to kingdom come. Now, a shepherd puts his feet on the ground and walks. You can't drive sheep. You lead sheep. You get in front and they follow. That's the image that Christ has. And the shepherd is looking up above the trail to look at dangers ahead or where there's good pasture ahead. That's the oversight aspect. They're looking over the flock as well, looking out for dangers. And they get out in front and they lead. That's what God's heart is. And elders are responsible to teach. You can read about this in 1 Timothy 4, 6-16. Teach these things. Continue in them. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Continue in these things that your progress might be apparent to all. The Apostle Paul is constantly urging Timothy, teach, teach, teach. Be a teacher. Teach people in doctrine. Teach people about the dangers of false doctrine. Teach people the real thing so they'll know to avoid the error. A shepherd is, yes, an overseer. He's a servant. He gets out front and he walks. He makes his life visible. You can't hide 40 hours a week in your office saying, well, I'm a teacher. No, no, you're a shepherd too. You have to get out in front and lead. But the whole time it's an exercise in instruction with doctrine behind it. 
I was telling Pastor Chris before the sermon, it's so hard on something like this to condense something that we think so much about. Let's move on. The purpose of this public proclamation. Notice, what does an apostle do? What does a prophet do? Or an evangelist or a pastor teacher? What is their role? They speak. They're public proclaimers. So what's the, what's the goal of this public proclamation? Let's go back to our illustration again, okay? Remember, Pastor Chris is a baker of bread. It's ironic that my name is Baker and I can't bake anything, okay? Who gets to enjoy his gift when he delivers it? Well, we do. So how are you to enjoy and benefit from the gift of these public proclaimers of truth? How are you to benefit from that? How are you to take advantage of that gift? How are you to enjoy that? Well, Paul tells us right here. He says that the purpose of teaching is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ. This teaching is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ. This phrase, to equip the saints, uh, means to, uh, this, this word equip has three different ideas. It means to repair what's broken. In Mark 1.19 or Galatians 6.1, this refers to the fishermen who were mending their nets. They'd used them in service and now there's holes in them and they can't catch the fish that they need. Something is broken and it needs restoration. Or in Galatians 6.1, there's a brother in Christ who got to sinning and he's fallen. And Paul says, restore that man. He was whole, now he's broken. Make him whole again. Make him whole again. There's another sense to this word. To create for a purpose. Not to create, not that there would be anything wrong with doing art for art's sake, but you create something for a purpose. I recently made a desk for my wife. She uses it every day. Imagine if she'd put it up in some corner of the house and only ever looked at it. I would say, you know, honey, I made that for you to use. Otherwise, it's just a really big bulky decoration she uses it we're to create for a purpose so this equipping is to create something purposeful in you third there's a sense of training for service in luke chapter 6 verse 40 it says that a workman who's trained for the task so this teaching this teaching that I'm to continue in, this teaching that I'm to persevere in, that I'm to give you on a weekly basis, is meant to repair any brokenness at all. Now think back on your life. Oh, how broken our lives can be. I hesitate even to start listing the types of brokenness because... Brokenness can come in so many different forms and stages and times and relationships and flaws, flaws and faults and misunderstandings and you name it. You name it. I guarantee everybody who walks through those doors has something that's hurting. Everybody has something that's 
out of joint. That's also how this word to equip is used. It's to set a bone. It's a medical term. Everybody who sits in one of these chairs every Sunday has a hurt. Has something broken. And teaching week in and week out is meant to mend and repair and restore those hurts. It's to train you for effectiveness in the kingdom of God. It's to give you zeal and purpose for your journey. For the work of ministry. This word ministry means table service. It's the same word for deacons, diaconon. It's for ministry. It's, it's not glamorous. It's service. It's a building project. This word for building up. The work of the ministry, which is the building up of the body of Christ. It, it literally means to build up what was broken down or to start a fresh building project all over again. It's to edify you, to build you, to construct you. So here's the picture that Paul is painting. Here's the picture that Paul is painting. God gives, in this day and age, evangelists and pastor teachers. I dare say we've got a few of each in our body right now. Pastor Dom is an evangelist. He's He's been active in planting several churches. This is one of them. He was the planting pastor of this church. And he's here ministering among us. He's an evangelist. He's also a pastor. Pastor Chris and I are both pastors, and it's our job to do the work of an evangelist. But we're here to teach, to live exemplary lives, which are supposed to be an instruction and as you guys grab hold of the teaching vision, you guys start doing the work of Fellowship Bible Church. Our work is the teaching and the equipping and the preparing and the creating. And then like winding up an intricate toy, we set you guys off to run and fulfill your purpose. That's how the church grows. That's how the church works. Where every person coming realizes they have a gift, they have a place, they're being built up so that they can build the body. And they get to work, working at the ministry. Let me just give one very practical application and then we'll move on to our real applications. If ever you have an idea for ministry... Come talk to us. I guarantee one of my, my, my answer will probably be this. Great. Go to it. <laughs> Do it. I want you to feel freedom to exercise your gifts and do the work of the ministry. I never want anybody to feel like, oh, they've got that figured out, or oh, they've already got this, or there's no room for me here. Oh, hogwash. Okay? If you have an idea for how to exercise your gifts for the building up of the body of Christ, 
please do us the service of bringing over some of your chocolate bread so we can enjoy it, okay? That's, that's the goal. Now let me get to two applications. Number one, Fellowship Bible Church must be first and foremost a teaching church. Okay, now this has, this has so many ramifications, but this is a philosophical point. Fellowship Bible Church must be first and foremost a teaching church. We don't major on experiences. We don't major on service. I don't think I've ever had to do this, but let us pretend for a moment. Again, I don't think I've ever had to do this, but let us pretend for a moment that you get neck deep in a project and you're like up to here. And it's Saturday and you call me over and call a bunch of people over, and for whatever reason, I haven't gotten to my sermon. (laughs) The conviction should be, if I say to you, I really need to go so I can work on my sermon, you would say, absolutely. Now, again, I don't think I've ever had to do that. I should have my sermon prepared before Saturday, so don't worry about that. But there needs to be a commitment. I'm trying to illustrate that there needs to be a commitment from the body to free the pastor for that teaching ministry. Now, I have never once felt pressure to cut preparation time short. If anything else, I'm saying that you guys are giving us too much prep time. Okay? So, right now, it's a, it's, a, it's a very healthy mix of hands-on ministry and teaching ministry. But, if ever the two have to be decided, if ever there has to be a choice, teaching must always win. If I croak and die tomorrow, I hope I don't, but if I do, please take care of my wife and kids and please hire a teacher. The next pastor here has to be a teacher and the pastor after that has to be a teacher and the pastor after that has to be a teacher. This is calling for a teaching ministry. Number two, I want us to notice that words are the primary vehicle of building up. Words are the primary vehicle of edification. We can build up with our words and we can tear down with our words, can't we? Oh, we must always be so careful with our words. But care is only half of it, isn't it? What happens if you never open your mouth for good? Yes, you've avoided saying something bad, which can be helpful. The Proverbs say that even a fool who keeps his mouth shut will be thought wise. But that's, that's pretty negative, isn't it? I would really encourage you to use words for the building up of other people. See, I'm, I'm not good with words. Write a note. Send an email. Tell somebody you appreciate their ministry. Tell somebody when they're good at something so they can know what their gift is. If something was an encouragement, somebody you noticed somebody was exercising their gift in service, it wasn't a teaching thing, they were serving and it went off really well. Use your words to affirm God's work in them 
to build them up to do more. How many of us would have to admit that when it comes to service, yes, I do need some positive reinforcement. And when I get it, I'm ready to do more. But when I don't get it, I can get a little discouraged. How many of us would put ourselves in that category? I'm raising my hand. You can raise your hand. I think most of us are. So let's be active edifiers with our words. Encouraging people, pushing people into the ministries that God has equipped them and called them.